the Retro Podcast Massacre, a virtual video library in which we remember horror films from the VCR era. My name is Val, and I shall be your helpful assistant. Let me escort you to our horror section. This is a spoiler light podcast. In this episode, I shall be revealing some aspects of the plot. My aim is to tell you enough about the film to intrigue you to watch it, but not enough to ruin it. However, the choice to continue, or not, is yours. Good evening, willing participants. Tonight, I'll be talking about Ken Russell's 1988 film, The Lair of the White Worm. Now, I should begin by issuing a warning. This episode is going to contain a lot of Willy references. But look, don't judge me. It's not my fault. Let's face it, it is right there in the title. This film is clearly just a huge Freudian metaphor, or a 90-minute Willy joke. My point is this. If you are offended by a gentleman's... his, um... well, you know, his down-below area... If you find yourself becoming nervous when I venture into the underpant region, then you really should switch off this podcast right now. This is going to be a willy-intensive episode. Soon we will all be knee-deep in diddler. There, I've said it. So then, did anyone turn off? Anyone? I thought not. You are all fucking reprobates. Onward. If you are unfamiliar with his work... Ken Russell was one of British cinema's most talented and singular directors. His films are readily identifiable by his wild imagery, his love of excess, and his willingness to challenge convention. In fact, the media used to refer to him as the enfant terrible of British cinema. This unprovoked use of foreign lingo upset me, so I looked it up. It turns out that enfant terrible means someone who behaves outrageously or unconventionally, which does sum up Ken pretty well. However, the literal French translation is terrible child, by which they mean the sort of child who says inappropriate things loudly and in public. Like asking, Who farted? in a quiet room. I have to say, this also seems like a pretty accurate description of Ken Russell. Those Frenchy fellows really know their films. Probably Ken's most celebrated film was his 1971 historical drama, The Devils. This film was loosely based on an event which took place in 1634 in France, when a group of nuns claimed that they had been seduced by the devil. What followed was a sort of satanic hysteria, similar to the 17th century witch trials in England and in Massachusetts. Ken Russell used this story to explore religion, religious hysteria, and repressed sexuality. He contrasts the real-life obscenities of social injustice and religious intolerance, with those things the British censors considered legally obscene in the early 1970s. Or in other words, Ken pushed the envelope as far as he could, sex and blasphemy-wise. There is actually a really entertaining story here, all about Ken's struggles with the British censors to get his film released. And if you do have the time, it's a lot of fun to look at the correspondence between Ken Russell and the sympathetic but politically influenced censors. 
You do have to bear in mind that the poor British censors were under siege from nutty right-wing pressure groups back then, so any film that involved both Jesus and the word fuck was likely to be problematic for them. Meanwhile, Ken Russell felt that the explicit scenes of sex, violence and blasphemy had to be preserved in order to maintain the integrity of his film. Christ must be seen to be debased, he wrote, but the censors replied in letter after polite letter, asking him to remove the very bad words and the scenes of nuns masturbating with a candle. They explained that yes, they appreciated that Ken had shortened the orgy sequence, but could he just be a good chap and remove the shot of the nudie nun twirling on a swing? It is all very civilised and very English, and I like to imagine Ken Russell and the censors discussing whipping and castration over tea and biscuits. Anyway, The Devils is a fascinating, challenging, often repulsive film, but it is supposed to be. As for the director, I always got the impression that Ken loved pricking the self-regarding morality of the establishment. His best-received films were made from the late 1960s through to the mid-1970s. Films like Women in Love, The Boyfriend, The Music Lovers, and The Who's Rock Opera Tommy are Ken at his best. However, 1988's The Lair of the White Worm is not considered a Ken classic. But that's why I want to cover it. I think this film is unfairly overlooked, overshadowed by his earlier achievements. And the fact is that The Lair of the White Worm is a lot of fun. Plus, it still has Ken's flair and his willingness to go all in on outrageous ideas, to present us with over-the-top imagery. It still has Ken's anti-authoritarian streak, too. That same desire to subvert and to be really naughty. Although in this film, there is a lot less cynicism and a whole lot more willy jokes. Ken Russell's script is really, really incredibly loosely based on the final novel from Bram Stoker, the man who gave the world Dracula. And if you think Dracula is dripping with sexual subtext, then you can only imagine what Bram might have been thinking about when he wrote The Lair of the White Worm. Dirty old bugger. The Lair of the White Worm stars Peter Capaldi, best known for the thick of it, and for being an ex-Doctor Who. It also stars a very young Hugh Grant. Now, I have mixed feelings about Hugh Grant. On the one hand, I do think that he's a genuinely terrific actor, But on the other hand, he was in Love Actually. I fucking hate Love Actually, and I still feel traumatised by the time I took my wife Caroline to see it. We had a deal that she'd accompany me to the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy if I would take her to see this film. Nine hours of Middle-earth action later, and I still think I got the worst end of that deal. But this film really belongs to Amanda Donohoe, who elevates the Lair of the White Worm from a fun horror movie to a camp classic. You'll be hearing a lot more about Amanda in just a moment. The film opens with Peter Capaldi whooping it up at the farm of sisters Mary and Eve Trent. Peter is playing an archaeologist on a dig in the Derbyshire countryside, and he's happy because he's just uncovered a Roman mosaic of a huge serpent wrapped around a crucifix. And he's also found a massive snake skull. I'm not kidding. This thing is huge, like the size of a small Rottweiler. The Trent sisters, who are played by Sammy Davis and Catherine Oxenberg, are equally enthusiastic about the snake head. 
Plus, they have adorable Northern English accents, which aren't at all a bit crap, so put that thought right out of your head. I should add that there's something about the Trent sisters that's a bit Enid Blyton. A bit Famous Five, or Mallory Towers. I'm sure it is intended, as it's clearly very deliberate. You just know that these are two people who have sandwiches and a thermos on them, at all times. Still celebrating, the three head to a folk rock concert, where a band sings about the local legend of the Dampton Worm. While the band plays, enthused locals caper about dressed as the mythical creature. Their worm outfit is like this massive snake thing, with lots of legs and massive jaws. It's clearly based on the actual legend of the Lampton Worm, which originates from the north of England. The main reason I bring this up now is because I'm from the northeast myself, and as a child was forced to play the back end of the Lampton Worm for a school play. I just needed to share that trauma with you. But anyway, if you, foreign person watching this film, find it all vaguely ridiculous, then let me tell you this. Yes. Yes it is. It really is. I'm sure my dad has pictures somewhere. Anyway. At the concert, we meet the local lord of the manor, James Dampton, played by Hugh Grant. He is fascinated to hear of the find at the farm, and explains that it was his ancestor who was reputed to have slain the original serpent. Meanwhile, a local policeman is investigating the disappearance of Mary and Eve's parents, which, we are told, had occurred prior to the start of the film. The policeman finds evidence, the father's watch, in the grounds of Temple House. Now then, Temple House is the country home of local temptress, and the main reason to watch this film, Lady Sylvia Marsh, as played by Amanda Donohoe. As an aside, Ken Russell had originally offered the part of Lady Sylvia to Tilda Swinton, who read his script and was so appalled by it that she refused to return his calls. Can I just say, you are no fun at all, 1980s Tilda Swinton. I hope in a future film with Benedict Cumberbatch you are forced to shave your head. Thankfully, Amanda embraces this role with a lip-smacking relish. Plus, she gets to wear the best outfits in this film, and I say this as a straight, middle-aged man, so if I notice these things, they must be bloody amazing. When we first meet Amanda, she is wearing a long flowing white coat and a jaunty white pirate hat. Shortly afterward, she can be seen sucking snake venom from the ankle of a tubby policeman. You see, while searching the grounds of Temple House, the policeman had been bitten by a snake, so Amanda invites him in to tend to his injury. While she's at it, the policeman inadvertently informs Amanda about the find of the snake skull at even Mary's farm, not realising that Amanda is secretly the high priestess of a pagan snake cult, and that she has evil intentions toward the Trent sisters. To achieve her evil ends, Amanda steals into the sisters' house the next day. This time she's sporting a green headscarf and orange sunglasses, and she looks a bit like Joan Crawford doing a Fair Dunaway impression. She prowls the house, like Cruella de Vil at a puppy farm. Then she steals the snake skull and runs off with it, pausing only to hiss and spit at a crucifix on her way out. Okay, 
it's time for another Amanda Donahoe appreciation break, because I bloody love her in this film. In the course of the film, she will make more sexual innuendos than Sid James at a cucumber convention. She will sport many glamorous outfits. She will shimmy out of a wicker basket like a viper, and she will biff a Boy Scout over the head with a large loofah. Sadly, you'll find her horror and comedy filmography is not extensive. But if you do need more Amanda in your life, then I recommend you look for her in the film The Madness of King George, or in one episode of the 1990s sitcom Frasier, in which she steals the whole show. Mind you, the rest of the cast in this film also appear to be having great fun. Catherine Oxenberg even gets to say, Ooh, me spotted dick, in all seriousness, and Peter Capaldi has a long discussion about the Dampton Worm while messily eating spaghetti. Hugh Grant, meanwhile, has always professed embarrassment at his involvement in this film, and I don't know why. He's never apologised for love-fucking, actually. Anyway, in this film he affects that same amused, yet slightly distracted manner that would serve him so well for the rest of his career. It's quite fascinating to see him here, actually, with that familiar character he nearly always plays already fully formed. Like many fine character actors, it does make you wonder where Hugh Grant ends, and where that mildly befuddled, stuffy character begins. But back to the film. Mary notices that the crucifix on the wall has been squirted with snake venom, and on attempting to straighten it, she is subjected to a wild vision. It is like a mini-homage to Ken's earlier film, The Devils, as a white serpent assaults Jesus on the cross, and Roman soldiers attempt to rape nuns as their abbey burns with cartoon flames. It's interesting to note just how controversial such scenes from Russell's earlier films were in the 1970s. By the late 1980s, I don't think this scene drew even a whisper of alarm from the critics. This may have been due to film critics just fucking growing up, or it may have been because Ken Russell had become something of a lovable national institution by the time this film came out. Oh, it's just Kenny, doing his nudie nun thing again, is something they probably said. Anyway, back to Amanda, who is still up to no good. We encounter her next, having just seduced a confused-looking Boy Scout. The bewildered Boy Scout enjoys a bubble bath while playing snakes and ladders with Amanda, but just when he thinks all his teenage prayers have been answered, she bites him somewhere. It is not made clear where, but I think we all know that it is on the willy really. And then she announces that her snake bite has paralysed him, and, P.S., he's about to be sacrificed to an ancient serpent god. But then the doorbell rings. Shit, says Amanda. It turns out that the ding-dong is in fact Hugh Grant, and the film then delights us with a plummy accent off between Hugh and Amanda, full of filthy double entendre. Hugh finds the snakes and ladders board. Playing with oneself can't be much fun, he observes. Now look, it is this sort of sophisticated wordplay that keeps my faith in British cinema alive. Hugh Grant does a bit of detective work at this point in the film, and he goes off to explore a local cavern. He postulates that the Dampton Worm may be some sort of prehistoric creature still surviving deep in the caverns. This is much to the derision of archaeologist Peter Capaldi and the sisters. However, all they find in the cavern are cave paintings of women with enormous willies. The others continue to explore, while Eve decides to give it up and go home on her own. On the way, Eve runs into Amanda languishing in a tree, and dressed in red leather trousers. A serpent in a tree seducing Eve? 
It's not exactly subtle, is it? But really, I don't care, because Amanda in red trousers. Amanda kidnaps Eve, and then rolls around on a sunbed while threatening Eve with a big pokey thing, and talking about virgins. They're so hard to come by these days, she sighs. Speaking of pokey things, the layer of the white worm is littered with so many Freudian images you will lose count. Vacuum cleaners, swords, pens, loofers, the Concorde. This film positively pants with repressed English naughtiness. It brings to mind High Court justices being lashed by Amazons, or members of Parliament putting their willies in mouse traps, or bishops sitting around in nappies. If your taste runs to high camp, and if you find sexual peccadillas particularly funny, then I suspect you'll enjoy this film a lot. It is absolutely fucking ridiculous, though, and if you are harbouring any doubts about this, then they will be dispelled the moment you see a bagpiper in a kilt being chased about by a snake disciple. But I'll stop there in telling you about the plot. I don't want to spoil it for you, and really, you need to see the last half of this film yourself to believe that it is an actual film, and I'm not just on the ganja. So what is this film really all about? If you want to, you can look at this film and find in it a story mocking established religion, the patriarchy, and men's fear of powerful women. Or you could just view it as Ken Russell having a bit of a laugh, and allowing Amanda Donahoe to stride about with a giant snake strap-on and threatening virgins. It's probably more of the latter. You can fall into the trap of over-analyzing films like this, which are more about fun than about Freud. Ken certainly didn't take Bram Stoker's source material particularly seriously. Catherine Oxenberg tells tales of cases of champagne being delivered daily to Ken's trailer, and he seemed to think the whole enterprise was just a hoot. Ken's adapted screenplay contains very little of Stoker's original story. Amanda Donahoe said that Oscar Wilde inspired Ken Russell far more. This script is peppered with wild references, which Ken Russell asked Donahoe and Grant to play as if they were in a Noel Coward play. As for Hugh Grant, he's admitted that he was never sure if the film was supposed to be a horror movie or a comedy. Ken Russell, meanwhile, was far more overt, telling Donahoe, Of course it's a bloody comedy. What did you think it was? In fact, Ken said that all of his films are comedies. It's just that critics take them far too seriously to laugh along. Speaking of critics, I read a review of this film by Peter Walker of The Guardian. He says it is one of his guilty pleasures, but then he goes on to totally trash the film. This made me think that he's more struck by the guilt than by the pleasure. He also says that the film is drearily sexist. And I feel I should address this, because I do try not to be a sexist motherfucking asshole. So is this film sexist? Full disclosure, there are a lot of women in the nip or in the near nip in this film and Ken Russell applied a lot of pressure to Catherine Oxenberg to do a nude scene for the film, which she successfully resisted. Meanwhile, Hugh and Peter get to keep their tackle tucked away with no behind-the-scenes issues at all. So, in that sense, it is an unequal and therefore sexist film. Also in the film, the two men are technically the heroes. Amanda is the villain, while Eve and Mary just sort of dangle about, waiting to be her victims. So there's that. But here's the thing. I don't know about you willing participants, but I love the villain. I celebrate the villain. And Amanda is a terrific villain. She strides about dominating the entire film. She's subversive, funny, and intelligent. 
She's powerful and unapologetic. She attacks her role with style and panache, and she gets all the best speeches. So when Amanda talks about paganism liberating women's sexuality, while male-dominated Christianity seeks to suppress it, you know that she's making an excellent point. Look, not that I'm suggesting you go off and join a snake cult, but, you know, give it some thought. No judgment. What I'm trying to say about Amanda is this. Even if Ken Russell was a drunken old misogynist, Amanda was clearly making a feminist film. On her part in the film, she said, Spitting on Christ was a great deal of fun. I can't embrace a male god who has persecuted female sexuality through the ages, and that persecution still goes on today, all over the world. So while Hugh is technically the hero of this film, we know that it is Amanda, really. And if a sexist director directs a feminist actor, what sort of film do they end up making? What are your thoughts, willing participants? Sexism aside, and judging the film purely as entertainment, I think that if you enjoy the Roger Corman cycle of Poe films, then you'll enjoy this film too. It channels that same tongue-in-cheek energy, that same visual flair and campy fun, and Amanda makes for an excellent Vincent Price. Still, as a horror film, I am forced to give this film just a 2 out of 5. The Lair of the White Worm may involve blood sacrifice, snake monsters, and Amanda Donahoe threatening people with a big spiky knob, but it's still never really trying to scare you. However, this film is hugely entertaining, right from the beginning up to the end, and for that reason I give The Lair of the White Worm a 4 out of 5 purely as a film. I'm probably being over-generous, but it's just so much fun. It's like this throwback to the 1960s. It's like a Corman Hammer mashup made by a director with a flair for striking visuals, outlandish ideas, and who gives zero fucks. Amanda Donahoe tells tales of Ken Russell on the set, shouting, More rape! More pillage! while Wagner blasted out from huge speakers. Meanwhile, Catherine Oxenberg sought reassurance that The Lair of the White Worm was just a working title, right? Of course it is, darling, Ken told her. And she was relieved, because she didn't want to be known for starring in a film called The Lair of the White Worm. Oops. Dear willing participants, thank you so much for your company tonight. I've enjoyed myself, and I hope you enjoyed listening in. Join me next time when I'll be discussing the 2001 film Session 9, another film which gives me the willies, but not in quite the same way. But for now, you can currently find Ken Russell's The Lair of the White Worm on Shudder, or streaming from Amazon if you're in the US. Or you can buy it on Blu-ray with a whole heap of special features. I do hope I've encouraged you to rediscover this campy, funny, stylish, and drearily sexist Ken Russell film. But don't say I didn't warn you. Good night. The Retro Podcast Massacre was recorded in Wellington, New Zealand. Your host was Val Thomas. This episode was produced by Katie Miller. If you have any requests, comments, or if you just want to say hi, you can tweet us at Podcast Massacre, or you can find us on Facebook or Instagram. Finally, if you like this podcast, spread the word. Rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you source your podcasts. Thank you for listening, and pleasant dreams. Thank you.